Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning. Well, I was expecting no one to be here because apparently this is fall break. Everybody told me that nobody would be in downtown, so why were so many people downtown yesterday? And there are a lot more people here this morning, so I guess I have to preach. We are on the third sermon of this series, Set Our Hope. As we look at the letter from Paul to the church at Corinth, this is his second letter. And in this letter, he's ministering to them in even a more pastoral way. He's getting down into the nitty-gritty of their lives. And he wants to remind them at the outset. And I want you to hear this morning, just as Ken said it earlier, God's face towards us and towards you and towards me is yes. Not a yes in the past, but a yes in the present and a yes in the future. And I want you to hear this message from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to the treasures in your word that you would enable us to see just how great is your yes in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to see and to receive this wonderful invitation. Be with us now, Holy Spirit. Strengthen us and renew us and help the teacher. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. So I apologize for everyone who is not in Generation X and who didn't care about music in the 80s. But I don't know where you were in October of 1983, but I and likely Ken, who was a year younger than me, 12, we were in a small town in South Carolina called Irmo, South Carolina, and we had one roller skate rink. It was the place to be. Man, it was great. Skateland. Man, that was the finest days of my skating moves. And there was one song that hit that October that was hot, and man, it was great. It was from that great British band I know you still listen to, Naked Eyes. (laughs) And they had a song, they had a song, yes, they did, called Promises, Promises. And I apologize now, it's now gonna be a song in your head for the rest of the day. And if you don't know it, go look it up. It's still there in all of its 1980s MTV glory. 
Never had a doubt in the beginning, never a doubt. Trusted you in the beginning, I loved you right through. Arm in arm, we laughed like kids at all the silly things we did. You made me promises, promises, knowing I'd believe. Promises, promises, you knew you'd never keep. So much angst. Said with such melodrama, but it was good, right? I mean, we got our skate on, it was great. You know, girlfriends, boyfriends, the whole thing. All the glories of middle school. Can I get an amen from the middle schoolers? Awkward times, right? But honestly, we project onto the word of God how we understand promises that we give to each other. Promises, promises. But will you keep them? We've never been, I think, in my lifetime at a lower stage of a lack of trust, culturally, relationally, in the church. I wonder if that's a reflection of whether we trust God in his promises to us. I have really good news for you this morning that God's promise to you is not in the past tense alone. It is right now living and active. And it will go on into the future. But do you know the promises of God? More than forgiveness, more than mercy. While those are all great, that the promises that Jesus Christ came, lived and died and was resurrected, past tense. But if you allowed the promises of God to take their proper tense in your life, to be brought into the present. Last week, we talked about being on the struggle bus. We're on the struggle bus, on the highway of affliction. What promises are you believing? Let's go now to God's word then. Three things I think that Paul would want us to declare as a result of hearing these words, and I believe these were things that he would also want the Corinthian church to hear. And his three declarations, if God's answer towards us is yes, then there are three things, three declarations we're gonna look at this morning. First, yes, he is. Secondly, yes, we are. Thirdly, Yes, he will. Yes, he is. Yes, we are. Yes, he will. Let's go. In these short verses, Paul is trying to establish a small problem. They're angry at him because he said he would come and he didn't at the time in which he said, and so he's trying to, in some way, shape, or form, trying to reestablish the fact that his not coming wasn't on purpose. He intended to come, but was unable to. And he was trying to make sure that no one was using that as a foothold to call his integrity into question. And because they had been preaching a Jesus that was not the same Jesus that Paul had been preaching, he wanted to make sure that if they lacked trust in him, that that trust was then not extended, that lack of trust was not extended to God. And so he's trying to establish that his face and the apostles' face towards them is not yes or no, but it is yes. He will follow through with his word and the word which he has preached, which is Jesus Christ. And then he says to them, God's answer towards you is yes. 
And he says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to glory to God. So the question is, he says that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. What promises, Paul? So the promises to which Paul is referring are not the promises, and there were a legion of promises which Jesus uttered in his earthly ministry, but he's not referring to those promises. He's referring to the promises of the Old Testament that God made to Israel. And so now Paul is saying that all of those promises that God made to Israel are now fulfilled in Christ, and God's face towards the church through Christ is those promises which were true for Israel are yes to you through Christ. So here's the question. Do you know the promises of God? Again, more than forgiveness, more than his mercy, more than receiving you, not on your, not on your bank account of activity, but on the work of Jesus Christ, we know those things, but my question is, out beyond that description of the Christian faith, do you know the promises of God? And I wanted to pick one this morning that is consistent with Paul's comfort language in the opening part of this letter. So let's look back briefly at one promise. And that promise comes to us in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most famous parts of uh, Isaiah's prophecy, he goes into deep detail about the person of this one who would come as a redeemer. He describes him as one that would not be attracted to us. He would not be one that we would expect to do anything for us and would be a man of sorrows. But he then says this about the work that this redeemer would do. Isaiah 53, 12. As a result of his work, this redeemer, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So God is saying through the prophet Isaiah to say to the people of Israel that this redeemer will come and through his death, God will give to him an inheritance and in that inheritance will be shared among the many, the strong, God's people. And in so doing, this redeemer will go to give of himself as a ransom for many to free them from sin and death. And he says these words, yet he will bear the numerous transgressions of the transgressors. So this part, so far, if you've been at church at all, and if you've been in this church, you will have heard this, that this redeemer would bear the sins of God's people so that they would not have to bear his wrath. And that Jesus Christ, in his death, took on our sin on the cross and took the penalty which is due to us alone, and he bore it for us. But there's the next line, dear Christian. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I wonder, have you remembered the next promise? Because if that 
former sentence was good news. Just wait till you hear what happens next. If you are not a believer, know this, that there is absolutely nothing you can do to have God say yes to you. Nothing you can do. Christ is God's face towards you. He loves you and he sees your sin and he bore it for you. But the good news is more than that. And here it is. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you know this promise? Paul knew the promise because in Romans chapter 8, he utters these words. In Romans chapter 8, he says, Who shall bring any charges against God's people, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And now hear these words. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Ongoing. Christ has already died. Christ has risen. Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And Paul is now linking Isaiah 53, 12 in the ongoing ministry of Jesus that at this very moment, more important than any sermon you will ever hear, more important than every, any song you will ever sing, Jesus Christ is praying for you. Right now. Not just Paul, but the writer to the letter of Hebrews says these words in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, speaking of Christ, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost, to bring it to completion. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, this very moment, of just choosing one small yet not insignificant promise becomes like a golden thread that we can trace through the whole history of God's work in the Old Testament to the New right into this very single moment in Franklin, Tennessee in your life. I don't know what you brought into the doors this morning. I don't know what worry or anxiety or what struggle, or what pain, or what uncertainty. But know this, Christ has done more than bear your sins. Christ has done more than to achieve for you redemption. He means to save you and me to the uttermost, to carry us to the finish, and he is interceding, praying, for all of us together, for you and for me. The great theologian John Murray wrote these words when he was describing this intercession of the work of Christ. He says, Our Lord, who has experienced every single aspect of our existential need, how indispensable is his comfort how helpful he is to the perseverance of our faith to know that Christ has experienced all of the temptations that we have experienced. 
He is our sympathizer, our helper, our comforter. And he has felt and feels with us every weakness, every temptation, and knows exactly what our situation, physical, psychological, moral, and spiritual is. And this he knows because he himself was tempted, like as we are yet without sin, that he who has this feeling with us in temptation appears in the presence of God for us and is our advocate, our intercessor with the Father and takes all of his sympathy, all of his efficacy, and takes all of his omnipotent compassion and invests it with our names at the throne of God. And do you know what that promise does? That promise says to each and every one of you who can hear my voice, whether you're in the present or you're joining us by live stream, is that means there is no thing that you need to hold back from God. No sin, no struggle, no addiction, no brokenness. It doesn't matter. Christ is praying for you. And here we get to say, as Paul says, amen. Can you say it with me? All God's people said, we say this all the time, don't we? But there's something that Paul does in the text. He says, the amen. It's not there in all of our English translations, but in the Greek, it is there with the actual article, the amen. He's referring to our liturgical order, which would have been present within, even in the Old Testament. The use of the word amen, which has it, let it be. But it has become for us many times just the period at the end of our prayers. But do you know that when we end our prayers, may God by his spirit, if you are a Christian and if you're not, now you'll understand what amen means. And if you don't, I know I didn't. Amen means when we pray something, we're saying, Lord, let it be. So therefore, we need to be careful what we pray. And we also need to be careful in whose name we pray, which is why you hear, if you're not a Christian, you hear people say, in Christ's name. So that also makes it very careful what we're praying. Because we're saying, I'm praying in Jesus' name, and I'm going to say amen. But let's just be honest. Can we just confess many of the times, right, folks, amen, and I'm a pastor, I'm a professional prayer. That's what people ask me to do. And I get to that end, and I know what I'm supposed to say. In Christ's name, amen. Straight up, it has lost its impact on me, which is why I need the renewal that he is. Because if we dig deep into just this one promise, that means that when we pray, when we take all of our stuff, and we bring it to God, and we lay it out, and we know that Jesus is praying for us even while we're praying, and even when we're not, that when we finish that prayer, we get to say, not amen, but amen. Not because of our name, not because of our desires, but because of Christ. 
not because of the eloquence of our words or the simplicity of our requests or the frailty of our morality, of our inability to actually understand that Jesus is the Christ even, even there, though I cannot wrap my mind or my heart around the great truths of God's word, even there, Jesus says he is. The gospel is not a dogma, a doctrine to believe. It is a person. He is the gospel. Amen. But not just he is. Not just yes, he is. But this is where it gets uncomfortable. Yes, we are. Notice what he says in the next verse in this letter. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us. What Paul is establishing for himself and for his his hearers He's trying to draw us all into one large communion, and he wants to remind us that yes, we are. If it's yes, he is, then yes, we are. What is that yes, we are? We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We are his. This is uncomfortable for us because in many ways, what Paul wants us to see is that once we come into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, the Father reorients us to Christ, in Christ, and through Christ. Here again, what he says in the prepositions. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and also has put his seal on us. So he has established us That's the first idea of this, yes, we are. He's saying he's literally put us in direction, reoriented us, put our GPS coordinates on one direction, Christ. We are Christward, is how you would literally translate it. So when the English says he establishes us with you in Christ, he's saying that in the work of what Jesus has done, coming into a living relationship with him, that he's taken us and our whole lives become Christward, not towards self. Because if he is, then we are his. We no longer are ourselves. And the challenge for that is, gets further and more uncomfortable if we understand what's being stated here because what he's actually using is he's using technical economic language. Verse, the beginning of verse 22, and who has put his seal on us? Now God, who has established us, drawn us out of ourselves and towards Christ, directing us to him, we are his, and then it says he places his seal on us. Now, just a brief, small history on the work of seals. We don't use that anymore. We use our signatures. But the problem becomes that in a time where we were in an illiterate age, people could not read. And in that illiterate age, they used the idea of seals. Every seal would be unique to its owner and would often be used in the place of a signature due to the illiteracy. 
All the way, even up through the late Middle Ages, wax seals were occasionally stamped directly on a document, but more common was for them to be stamped separately and then affixed to the bottom of a document with a ribbon, a cord, or a strip of parchment. During this period, the wax was generally made of resin, beeswax, and later it was used in different uh, ingredients, and eminent figures would often use more expensive material for their sealing documents. Paul is saying, who would have used such seals, is that we are living documents that now belong not to ourselves but to the Lord, and it is God who has placed his seal of ownership on us. Now, this presses in against us because it feels to our individualistic age where we want to decide what way we go, how we get there, and what we want to be like. We want to self-define. I know I do. And so this sounds like a power play, except when you realize that when Paul has already established that he is, that means that God uses his power to bless and to give his mercy and grace away, not to extract it from us for himself. God brings us to himself, places a seal of ownership that says, mine. But not as a power play, but as a blessing of his mercy and grace. So therefore, we no longer live unto ourselves, but we live Christward. And he says that he establishes us in this Christward direction. In setting his seal upon us, he says that in establishing us in Christ and placing his seal upon us, he also is with us to help us on the way. He strengthens us. He enables us to stand firm. But how? How does he do this? He does this because of this final point for Paul. He will. Yes, he will. In verse 22, and he who put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, what he's using in this language of verse 22 is economic language. And Paul recognizes about himself and those who are hearing him. And all of us who are here in this room, we're all on a journey. And we're at different places on that journey. And whether you are a young believer in Christ or you've known Christ for a long time or you haven't known him at all, we're all on a journey. We're not at the beginning and we're not at the finish. We're somewhere in the middle. We have already experienced life, but there's plenty of life we have not yet experienced. It's the scripture's understanding of the already and the not yet. And he uses this economic language in this way, that God has put down a down payment. And that down payment is to give us his Holy Spirit. Now, a few weeks ago, when I was traveling and interviewing here and we got done with all that and we, thanks be to God, we're moving here and we have no idea where we're going to live. I was on our last trip here. It was my first week here. And I, Kate said before I left the house, hey, just in case, let me give you a check 
just in case we're able to put an offer down on a house. And I said, that sounds like a a great idea. But I was really unsure. And I was really careful with that check. I stuck it in an envelope way down in my briefcase. The last day we were he- I was here before I was to fly back to Maryland on that Saturday, before the Sunday, that morning we got the call that we, the, the sellers accepted our offer. And of course, the next question from our real estate agent is, we need some earnest money. How can we do that? <laughs> so I said, well, actually, Kate sent me here with a check. I'm walking by faith and I have a check in my hand. And it was that check that allowed us to be able to say to the seller, we're putting earnest money down and there will be more to come on the closing date. We operate in this kind of idea all the time. And so Paul uses this very common everyday language, very common everyday economic activity to say, that God in Christ has done these things. He continues to fulfill his promises towards us, which is yes. He is the one who has established us in Christ, Christward, and helps us to stand firm. We belong to him and not to ourselves. But how do we know? Because he's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is only a down payment for what is yet to come. This is what he means. Means that we have not yet reached the destination. And so he knows that his hearers, and we know as those who are experiencing life, that we often judge the efficacy of God's present activity in our lives based on our circumstances. And when we're honest, we look at our circumstances and we say, hmm, not so sure. Is God really working? How do I know the Holy Spirit is at work? How do I know the Holy Spirit is real? And here comes the work of those who say they've received this gift. It means that the church of Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, because God's face towards you this morning is yes, and because Christ is praying for you this very moment, and because God in Christ has established us and our lives to be Christ's word, and he promises that he will continue to do these things into the future to bring them to a glorious finish, that we find ourselves in the middle of the struggle bus, in the middle of life, and it feels like we're in a ditch sometimes. So now is the moment. Wherever you are, in your journey with Christ, I'm gonna ask you a rhetorical question that I hope sticks with you the rest of this week. Are you asking God to show up in your life? Are you asking him before you ever put your foot on the floor in the morning or before you get behind that car, uh, car steering wheel, and before you engage in that first meeting, before you have to wipe that nose, 
before you have to respond to that email or that text or that snub or that angry response or that welling up inside of you of frustration and wanting to control, in all of that mess, are you asking God to show up? Am I asking God to show up? Because he wants to remind you that his Holy Spirit is a down payment. Are you asking the Lord to demonstrate to you his down payment of the Holy Spirit to you? His presence, his action, his power, his ability to reorient all of our mess. Are you asking the Lord for his light to shine in? I was with a friend this week and he was sharing with me the deep, severe trials he's been through over the last five years. About halfway through our time together, he said to me, he said, Randy, I think about it like this. He said, I recognize that I'm broken. And these last five years have brought me to the end of myself, of who I thought I was, what I was supposed to be, where I was supposed to go, even where I was supposed to live. But I've realized only in that brokenness, when things are cracked, it is light able to actually shine through. But I've then asked the Lord, Lord, if your light is shining through, that means you can also use your light to shine out of my brokenness back through the cracks to others who are hurting. And we stopped and I said, can, can I write that down? He said, yes, I... I'm a broken piece of clay. But through those cracks that God has allowed in my life, his light has shined through, but I now see I get to turn that light and to help others. And I realized in that moment as we were talking, I said, that is someone who recognizes and who is struggling, who is hurting, who is broken, but who has said, Lord, I need you to show up. I need the Holy Spirit you have placed your seal. You have put the spirit in my heart, in our hearts. May your spirit be at work, even in this broken, desperate person. And may your light shine through, and may I give it away to others. I was like, okay, that's good. That is really good. Because I struggle. I see that to-do list. I hear the phone dinging. The emails are piling up and I just have to get to work. Perhaps you're weary and exhausted and hurting and you need to hear that Jesus is interceding for you. Perhaps you are hurting and yet you've seen the light of the Lord shine through by his spirit now you need to pray that the Lord would use that same light and that you can give it away to others, that you can pray for them. But this I know. If Paul is saying to us, God's face towards us is one giant yes, do you know his promises? 
because they are good. And he has, he is, and he will always be faithful. And all God's people said, amen.